Morning, family. Hasn't it been a beautiful weekend together? And just Friday was just so wonderful, just to spend time as a community, our extended community together, and there was such a sense of the powerful, powerful sense of the Lord's presence with us. Today, it's also not only Resurrection Sunday, and that will be the foundation of the message today, obviously, but it's also the last message in our series that we started um, in February, early in February already, and our series entitled More Fruit, where we've been journeying through the book of John and considering just what John is teaching us about living lives that glorify the Lord Jesus and glorifies God. And uh, so today is almost, the, in a sense, the coming together, the culmination. I trust that there will be some sense of a climatic moment even in today as we wrap up this series um, and just so much that we have learned over this time. I, I have really valued it so much and have learned so much, and I want to thank so many of you for the, just the comments of appreciation and support um, and, and through this series and what you've learned and enjoyed, and I trust that it would be seed that would continue to go journey with us. My key word for the message today is the word glory or glorification. It's a word that we sang a lot about this morning. It's a word that we often talk about as believers, but sometimes I feel like, like it's a word that we, we struggle to quite get hold of. What does that actually mean? And so for today's purposes, the, the one aspect of what it means to glorify or what glory means that I want to build this message around is simply to say this, to glorify means to make known or to make seen. To glorify is to make something fully known for what it fully and really is. To glorify anything, you have to see it. Let me just put it simply like this. If you want to know something or if you want to know someone, you have to see them. Deep revelation for this morning. Amen? We can go home. Chew on that. I mean, just think about it. Unless you have some view into someone's life, you cannot get to know them. Even if that is just you read about them, that's a view. That's seeing them. To know somebody, you have to see them. The more you want to know them, the more you have to see them. That's just the way it is. That's how life goes. It's one of our challenges here on a Sunday, for instance. There's so much happening in the life of our church that what do we make you see on a Sunday just in terms of the announcements? And I can tell you there's a whole team of people. Michelle sitting here in the front with me. She's uh, with uh, Uncle Harry and, and Auntie Winnie. She's one of the persons responsible for that and works in that team. And can I tell you, it's a wrestle to try and figure out how do we and what do we say where and when so that people can see it. Because if you don't see it, you don't know about it. So we can have wonderful things happening like our missionaries that are doing fantastic things, but you'll never know about it because you don't see it. So we try and find ways to make things seen. That what, that's in a sense what it means to glorify something, is to shine the spotlight on it, to, to make it visible so that somebody can know that thing. And ultimately we use that word about God. To glorify God. We want to this morning come together to glorify God. To show Him. To see Him. To make Him known. To spend time gazing upon Him so that we can see Him. So that we can know Him. And that's God's desire for all creation is to know Him. And that's what I want to talk about in the life of Jesus and as we've seen unfold in the book of John. Now on Friday we spoke about his crucifixion. And we used the term the hour has come. Because that's how often Jesus spoke about his crucifixion. But there was another term that John used to describe the crucifixion of Jesus. And it is this term to be lifted up or lifted up. We see this term for instance in John 3 verse 14 to 15. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness. So the son of man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. You'll remember the story in the Exodus. The Israelites was challenged with this plague. And to, to bring healing to them. God said take a snake. Put it on a cross. And lift up the snake. So that everyone that looks on it will be healed. Isn't it amazing that God didn't say just get the snake. And anybody that happens to see it. He said make it easy for people to see. Make it so that people can see the snake. Elevate it above the rest. 
so that people aren't looking here on the ground trying to find where's the healing, where's the answer, but that everybody can raise their eyes and say, there it is, there's the healing. And, and, and here John says, just like that had to happen in that occasion with a snake, so Jesus had to be lifted up so that everyone who sees him can be saved. I, I so appreciate that, that Jesus isn't hiding in the shadows, saying, if you really want me, you've you got to find. He doesn't play treasure hunt with us. He clearly elevates himself above every claim of any other God of any other philosophy or any other religion or any other man or offer of salvation, Jesus is lifted above that and says, here, look at me. If you see me, you will see salvation. Jesus is being glorified. So in a sense, the cross is the point, is, is this place of the glorification of Jesus. It is where he's lifted up. In, in John 12, verse 32, Jesus said himself, and when I am lifted up from the earth, lifted up from the earth, put on a cross and lifted up from the earth. In that moment when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I will be raised above every other thing, every other thought, every other religion. I will be lifted up so that every person will have to turn their gaze towards me so that everyone will have to look at me. I will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Jesus needs to be lifted up so that people can see him so that they can glorify him. If we're not lifting Jesus up, people can't see him and therefore they can't glorify him. They can't get to know him. They can't get to see and experience who he really is. And this is the desire of God, and it was his desire for us right from the beginning that we will know him, that we would get to live with him, really know him, not just know of him, not just have an idea, but to know him, to have intimacy with him. And that's why Jesus said in John 15, and we've spoken about that a couple of times already, that if you really want to live the life that glorifies my Father, you have to abide with me. You have to live with me. How do you, how, what is the best way to get to know somebody? It's live with them. Just spend time with them. Those of us that did the year of your life, we got to know each other. The good, the bad, and the sometimes downright nasty. We, we just, I mean, we got to know each other. When you live with people, you get to know them. And God says, I want you to know me. So in John 1 verse 14, right there in the beginning, I just want to connect a couple of the dots. It says in John, John 1 verse 14, not 1 John, John 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. He came and dwelt among us. Remember I said that word is the word tabernacle. He came and pitched his tent in our midst. He tabernacled with us. So that I can live with God, so that I can get to know Him, that I can see Him. I can see Him in every context of my life, in every moment, in every experience. He's right there. I can see Him because I can see Him, I can get to know Him. This has been the desire of God from the creation, is that we would know Him. Remember when God created Adam and Eve and He put them in the Garden of Eden, He came and walked with them in the garden. They had interaction with one another. That was God's desire for every one of us is that we would live with him, that we would know him. But we chose to not know him. We chose to turn away from him, to say, thank you for the offer, but we don't want to know you. We, we would rather want to know ourselves. We want to know our way of life without you. And so we ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we turned away from God. And, and we, were, we lost the glory of God. What does it mean we lost the glory of God? We, it means we lost seeing Him and being seen within Him. We lost that. And, and we became people without the reflection of God upon us. And over time, the darkness began to increase. 
Because the problem is, if you say to God, I don't want to know you, you're actually saying, I don't want to know anything. Because if God made everything and everything exists because of him and everything exists for him and is sustained by him, if you're saying, Lord, I don't want to know you, then you begin to unlearn anything else because he is the reason for everything. Everything exists in relationship to God, in its position and relation towards God. It finds its purpose and its meaning from God. So if you take God out of the equation, you begin to not see the rest for what it really is. And that's why we abuse things, because we don't quite know what they really are for, because we don't know God anymore. And so life slowly descends into this increasing darkness. And the problem with darkness is you can't see, and therefore you can't know. You cannot know anymore. You can't know God because you're in darkness. We're groping around. We're trying to feel our way through and try and discover and understand. But we've lost the light. We've lost our ability to see. But despite this, God said, I have not lost my desire for you to know me and for me to know you. So even after all of our rebellion and turning away after our sin that was so horrible that you read in the early part of Genesis, God comes along and he says, I want you to know me. So he finds a a group of people, a small nation. They really are an extended family, a big extended family, but an extended family. And, and, he, and he finds them there in the desert, in the middle of nowhere, literally, where nothing happens. It's not a great place to be. It's the small group of people in this nowhere place. And God comes and says, I'm going to come and live with you because I want you to know me. And we read about that in Exodus 25, verse 8. He says, then have them make a sanctuary for me or a tabernacle, and I will dwell among them. The same word as what we read in John 1. God says to this family, this extended family in the middle of nowhere, he says, I want to come live with you. I'm going to move in. Get me a caravan. Get it out so that I can live with you. Why? So that you can get to know me. So that you can see me. In the midst of the darkness, the light is going to come in. And God starts journeying with these people through a cloud of fire, a cloud and a column of fire. Eventually, they build this tabernacle and the presence of God begins to dwell in this makeshift tent so that wherever they go, God can go with them so that they can get to know him. And they have these amazing moments of interaction with God where they're getting to know Him. In, in Genesis 40, they've now erected this tabernacle. They've made a home for God. It says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Adam and Eve lost the glory of God in the garden, and now in the desert, the glory is coming back to the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. Not because we wanted it or they wanted it, but because God said, you need my glory. You need to know me. Because if you don't know me, you have no light and you will see nothing and you will understand nothing. So God comes and he starts living among his people again. But the hope in that was not just for that small group of people. Why did God come and live with this extended family in the middle of nowhere? It is so that through living with them, he could begin to move back into the whole earth and so that everybody could get to know him. So that every tribe, every tongue, every nation would get to know him. And that became the hope of glory for us. The hope of glory was, is, is captured in Psalm 20, 72. In verse 19, it says this, May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Instead of just a small group of people in the middle of nowhere with a tent that carries the glory of God, God says, I want the whole earth to be filled with my glory. I want everywhere. I want every nook and cranny, every valley, every mountaintop, every space, every home, every shack, every palace. I want my glory to permeate. I want everywhere people to get to know me again to see me, to have the opportunity to see me. The, Psalm 72 verse 17, May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all the nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. 
Praise be to the Lord God of the God of Israel who does marvelous deeds. Praise be to his, his glorious name forever and ever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. And that was God's hope for us. That he could take back his rightful place of living among us. So that we may see him and that we may get to know him. A couple of uh, Fridays ago, not this past Friday, the Friday before that, Brian, Retief and Debbie and I, we were at a key leaders meeting just down the road here. And Francis Chan was there and he shared the afternoon and he spoke about Psalm 19, so I'm going to borrow a little bit from his message that he shared with us. In Psalm 19, it says this, Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. You see, our God wants us to see him. So he always makes sure there's enough light shining in his direction. Because if God's living in the shadows in the dark, you won't know him. But so he is always allowing and made things to show him, to reveal him, to glorify him. And of the first things that he made is the celestial bodies, the sun, the stars, the moon. The scripture says that the, the, the sun, the stars, and the moon, they tell us about who God is. Now let's think about the sun for a moment, our sun. I mean, it's true, it's not an overstatement, that we're alive because of the sun. Amen? Every bit of light that we have comes from the sun, not ESCOM. Praise the Lord. I mean, these lights couldn't burn, even though they are artificial lights, if it isn't for the sun, because the sun creates the energy that goes into the fossil fuels, that goes into solar, whatever. And in South Africa, we're getting to learn more and more that we need the sun. The sun gives us life and energy. Just think about it. There's this ball hovering in the sky. I'm not quite orientated at the moment. Where is the ball at the moment? Somewhere above here, yeah. It's like almost 12 o'clock somewhere. So it's just above us here. There's this ball of gas on fire. It's been on fire for a long time, and we hope it's still going to be on fire for a long time. It's just burning up there, creating light and energy that we depend on. This ball of fire up there is just close enough that we can get benefit from it, but not too close. Otherwise, we'd burn to death. It's this phenomenal thing that we know God spoke into being. God said, let there be light. God created, he said, let there be light, and then later he said, he created the sun, the moon, and the stars. And the sun burning up there, just doing what it does, doesn't really matter what we do down here. The sun's going to keep on doing what it's doing. The sun is not only the celestial body that shines its rays on us, but it is also a proclamation of who God is. It is everyday proclaiming. You know what it's telling us? That, you know, when we look up at the sun, we think, wow, that is spectacular. Let me tell you, our sun possesses 99.8% of the mass in our solar system is in the sun. 0.2% of the mass of our solar system is us, the earth, and everything on it, all the other planets, and whatever space dust is floating around, is 0.2% of the mass of our solar system. 99.8%. If you had to weigh our solar system, the sun dominates the scales it's heavy man it's big and there it is our sun has this amazing ability it converts four million tons of solar material into energy every second four million tons and escom has a problem with keeping coal dry <laughs> so i'm gonna knock escom this morning <laughs> The sun converts 4 million tons of solar energy per second. It's no wonder that when people look up at the star, at the sun, they think, can there be anything more glorious than the sun? Can there be anything more wonderful? And so civilizations has worshipped the sun. We know the Egyptians, they worshipped the sun god Ra. The sun became to them the highest display of godlikeness because of the power of the sun. Now, 
you and I look at the sun and we go, wow, that is amazing. But imagine the God who made that. How amazing He must be. How powerful He must be. If He spoke that into being, if that is just a small reflection of who He is, wow. So can you see the sun is literally shining light on God and helping us to see? Now let me blow your mind. Do you know that our sun, because this blew my mind, our sun is one of the smallest suns in the universe. As far as we know, what we have observed so far, the biggest sun that we know of in our universe is a, is a star by the name of Uy Scuti. Uy Scuti. Uy Scuti was discovered in 1860 by a German astronomer. Now, fortunately for us, Uy Scuti is 9,500 light years away. That's far. Okay, you're not going to cover it in your Corolla. 9,500 light years from Earth. Do you know why it's fortunately? Because UI Scuti is so big that 5 billion of our suns would fit into that sun. 5 billion. So you look up at our sun and you say, wow, imagine that. And guess what? That is a reflection of who our God is. That just tells partially a story of the majesty, the splendor of our God. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. This God, this God that made celestial bodies like this, that is of such size and scope and influence and, and power, He made them to reflect a bit of who He is. That God says, I want to live with you so that you can know me. That God comes and says, make space for me in your life. He asks you, can you make place for me? Now, that's, I mean, that's something to think about. But not only does he say, I want to live, he does everything he can to make it possible that he can live with us so that we can know him. And ultimately, this desire that the whole earth may be filled with the glory of the Lord came together in Jesus Christ. Jesus that came and said, I'm now going to come and live among you. I'm going to take this glory, this majesty, and I'm going to fashion that into a, a way that is possible for you to get to know, to touch, feel, experience. John 17, Jesus prays the high priestly prayer, and he prays the following. Verse 1. Father, the hour has come. Remember, the hour of my crucifixion. Glorify your Son, so that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those who have, you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by giving, finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus, that was there when Uy Scuti was spoken into existence. Jesus, that caused this to happen. This Jesus, that lived in the glory of God, comes and says, now I'm going to put on the form of a man. And I'm going to come and live with you so that you can touch me, so that you can actually see me. Can you see the huge spotlight that is shining that says, get to know God. You can know God. Here he is. Come touch him. Come feel him. Come hear him. Come see him. And Jesus lives among us. This amazing Jesus, all because of what he says here in verse 3. Now this is eternal life. What is eternal life? That they may know you. If you want to ask somebody what heaven is like, there can be discussions about pavements of gold and pearly gates and all of that, but can I tell you what makes heaven heaven? 
what defines heaven, what makes eternal life good, is that we will know God. For this is eternal life, that they will know you. Knowing God is what we are going to do for the rest of our existence. There is no end ahead of us. There's only a time ahead to get to know God. Do you, can you see the angels standing around the throne room with their wings covering them? And they shouting, glory, glory, glory to the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, who is to come. They're shouting all day long, proclaiming His praises, proclaiming who He is. Every day, they're seeing Him, and they cannot help themselves but shout at the top of their voices how great, how majestic, how wonderful this God is. And that's what you and I are going to experience for eternity. Now we see dimly. We get little tastes sometimes of who God is. In our perspective, they feel like, overwhelming tastes but compared to what he really offers I think they're small I don't know if you've experienced it I've experienced it a couple of times in my life where we're in prayer or in, or in worship or in just in a moment it's like God just pulls the curtains back slightly and for a moment I get to experience something of heaven and it feels like I'm going to explode I, I've really had one or two of those experiences where you've become fully alive in one minute in one moment, because you are getting to see the one who is the reason for everything and expresses himself in everything. Jesus says, I have come that they may know you. So Jesus glorifies God. That was his mission, was to glorify the Father. That was what he came to do, is to show us. He, Jesus Didn't Jesus say, if you see me, you see the Father? Look at me. See the spotlight shining on me. Thank you, Father, for letting the spotlight shine on me. But the spotlight is shining on me so that they can see you. So that they can understand your glory, who you are. So they can get to know you. And Jesus is always pointing. Remember, John said that there were signs that were pointing at Jesus. Every sign that he did, the miracles, many of them were signs. Remember, we spoke about that. Messiah, here's the Messiah. Look at the Messiah. See the Messiah. Get to know the Messiah. When you come to the Messiah, he's pointing you in another direction. He's saying, there's the Father. Come to the Father. Go to the Father. The Father is the one that deserves glory. Now, just grant me a moment. I need to go on a bit of a side quest here. Just take a little bit of a detour. Because when I talk like this, we can sometimes get in trouble with our doctrine and theology. It's very important to understand. We sang it this morning, three in one. We believe in a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One of the ways we describe the trinity is three persons, one in essence. I don't know if you've heard that description. That's literally what we sang this morning, three in one. And what does that mean? To describe the Trinity, I cannot do it this morning, but to talk about the Trinity is more an exercise in, in talking about what the Trinity is not. Over our decades and centuries of theological understanding, we come to conclusions what the Trinity is not, because it's very hard to describe one. Natasha always says we don't have another one walking around that we can point to. So it's hard to describe. What does it mean when we say the Trinity is three persons, one in essence? What does the word essence mean? The word essence means that which, you, which makes you you. It's your attributes. We are classified in certain categories according to characteristics and attributes that we have. I am in the category of human. Are you with me? Not only that I'm human, but that you're human also. Can we agree on that? That means we have certain characteristics or attributes that we share. Any person that says, I'm a human, has certain characteristics that classifies them as human. And we share those categoristics. We have that, never mind. We have that, <laughs> let's, let's go to essence. I'm, otherwise, I'm going to start speaking Afrikaans, and then I'm going to lose the rest of you. I don't even know if I'm ever going to do that. But essence is, we are human in our essence. You get born with certain essence, the essence of humanity. So we can say, therefore, you and I have some of the same 
essence. We are two persons that share some essence. But we cannot say we are two persons, one in essence. Now you're all going, no, I don't know what that means. Okay. Okay, let me explain it like this. I'm standing over here. I'm a human. I have an essence of being a human. Humanness. I'm a representation of that. Okay? Now my friend Graham that's sitting over there is also a human. He has humanness, essence of humanity in him. But how many of you know that this is me and that's Graham? This is not me and Graham and that is Graham and Louis. We are not one in essence. We share essence. But he's there, I'm here. When we talk about God and we say God is one in essence, we're saying Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one, yet three. Because they are of the same essence. Let me try and explain this further. Sometimes people have tried to use analogies to describe the Trinity of God. One of the analogies is God is like an apple pie. Doesn't that sound nice on Easter? God is like an apple pie. What they're saying is an apple pie has different parts to it. What makes an apple pie is it has certain characteristics. It has certain essence to it. Otherwise, it's not an apple pie. It could be a custard pie. It could be something. But because it's made with apples, it is an apple pie. But also an apple pie has a crust and it has a base. So sometimes they, they will say, you know, God is the apples in the middle. The Holy Spirit is the, the crust or I don't know how. And you cut through it. It's one pie, but it has these three parts. You cannot do that with God. Because God is one in essence. God is not an apple pie. Because if God was an apple pie, then we can divide God up into little bits. Then we can say the attributes of God. Let's describe some of the attributes of God. God is love. That's an attribute, isn't it? God is just. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is everywhere at the same time. Those are some of the attributes of God. Let me ask you this question. What is your favorite attribute about God? Come on. What's your favorite attribute? Of those five that I've mentioned, what do you like the most about God? Yeah, you see, that's the trick question. I just caught you. You cannot answer that question. Because you cannot divide God in God is love. Because like what I do with an apple pie is for an apple pie to be an apple pie, I think it must at least consist of 50% apples. Amen? Otherwise, it's a wannabe apple pie. It's not really an apple pie. So... It's, its essence of apple pineness comes from the fact that it has 50% apples, perhaps it's 15% crust, you know, and so you can do that. You can't do that with God. Because do you know that God does not love, God is love. Everywhere God is, love is. At the same time, God is justice. Everywhere where God is love, God is justice also. You can't have portions and sections of God. If that was true, then we could say, I like the justice of God, but I'm not so comfortable with his love. You can't do that because everywhere, all of him is present all the time. Because if we could divide him up, if we could do that, then we could say, for instance, okay, I like Jesus more than I like the Father. The Father's the angry one. The Father's the one that was upset. The Father is the one that wants to judge me. The Father is the one that says, stop running around in my house and making a noise and making things dirty. Jesus is the one that comes and says, okay, Dad, just let's calm down. Like moms always often have to do. Just let's just, let's just keep a perspective here. Look, I, I've come to die so that you can pour out your wrath upon me so that you can... Instead of, you know, calling, I almost said a bad Afrikaans word. Instead of throwing thunder upon them, now you'll know what I was going to say, they just pour it out on me. So I like Jesus because Jesus is God's forgiveness while the Father is God's judgment. You can't do that. Because every bit of the God-likeness that is in Jesus is in the Father, is in the Spirit. Three persons one in essence. This is the beauty of that. Can you hear what Jesus is doing? 
He's saying, I have come to glorify the Father. He's pointing to the Father. Guess what? When you speak to the Father, what does the Father do? I want you to see my Son. I want you to glorify Jesus. Guess what the Spirit does? The Spirit points to Jesus. Jesus points to the Spirit. They are perfectly all the time doing this, glorifying each other. You cannot pray in the name of Jesus, and that means you exclude the Spirit, and so you must make sure that you pray in the, to the Spirit as much as you pray to Jesus, otherwise the Spirit's going to feel left out. You can't do that because they are three in one. Now, I'm emphasizing the oneness at another time. We can talk about the three persons. What does that mean more? But I, I wanted us to get, so here ends my side quest, side quest. I'm back to the main quest now. Because I just don't want us to have this separated idea in our minds of here's Jesus and there's the Father. And so Jesus is like the Son pointing to the, like our earthly Son that I said that points to God and says, there's one greater than me that made me. When Jesus says, I glorify the Father, he's not saying I'm lesser and the Father is more. The miracle of it is actually that they are co-equal with one another. You see, if I glorify God, I have to because he is bigger than me. When Jesus glorifies the Father, he doesn't have to. It's because he loves him. And the Father loves him. And the Spirit loves. And this consistent preferring of one another, of glorifying one another, of loving one another, of being humble towards one another, serving one another. It is this dynamic that creates the glory and the power that ultimately causes everything else to exist. That's where the power is born, right there. So here Jesus comes and he says, I want you to see the Father by looking at me. See me and you'll see the Father. I, want, I don't want the Father to be a mystery to you. I don't want you to wonder about the Father. I want you to know the Father. So I'm going to live with you. I'm going to dwell among you. And so the way that Jesus glorified the Father, just two ways I want to highlight quickly, is he glorified the Father through his obedience. This Jesus that is co-equal with the Father prays and says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. That wasn't a hierarchical prayer of I don't want to do this, but you're the boss. If you tell me to do this, I will do it. That was a prayer of love. Of I want what, what you prefer, that is what I will prefer. What will be the best for you is what will be the best for me. That co-equal relationship. And Jesus comes. And he humbles himself. And he obeys the Father. Through his obedience, the scripture says, he glorified the Father. John 20, verse 17, Jesus said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to get to that verse just now. So, so Jesus comes to the cross, and it becomes this lifted up glorification of a total love and surrender to, to the Father by Jesus. Can you see how he's glorifying the Father? He's preferring the Father. He's showing the goodness of the Father. Because he chose this. Remember I said on Friday he made this. He's the author of the cross. And he comes in that moment and, and he just surrenders everything. And he says, Father, let your will be done. And he goes to the cross. And our anger gets exacted upon him. You see, because we, having stepped away from God, now in our trying to know things, we break things up into their smallest bits. Anything we don't understand, we try and break down so that we can understand it. And that's what we did with Jesus. He was too, too much for us to understand, so we broke him down. And we killed him to make him fit in underneath us, under our authority, because then we know what to do with him. Then he's not a challenge, he's not a threat, because he's not more than us. We reduced him, we subdued him. At least we thought we did. Because not only did Jesus glorify the Father because he obeyed the Father even to the point of death, but he glorified the Father through his resurrection. Through his resurrection, he glorified God ultimately. In John 17, or 20 verse 17, we read now that Jesus has been buried, the, the Mary Magdalene goes early in the morning to the grave to go and just, you know, be there, minister to the body of Jesus. She gets to the garden, you know the story. 
And she's looking, but there's, uh, the stone has been rolled away. She finds a person there, and she thinks he's the gardener. Meanwhile, it's Jesus. And Jesus says this to her when she's not quite yet sure of who he is. Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet descended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. What is Jesus saying? That desire that we had from the beginning that you will know us, be able to live with us, which you lost and was reintroduced to you through the tabernacle, the Shekinah glory of God that came and dwelled with the Israelites. I have now taken that a whole big bunch of steps further. Now you are my brothers and sisters. I have risen from the dead so that you can know God, that you can see Him fully. And you can now know Him because you will be made alive. Ephesians 1 verse 20. He, when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above rule and all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills every, everything in every way. We sang that song so beautifully this morning. Here Jesus dies, and because he glorifies the Father in his death through his obedience to the Father, his loving of the Father, his preferring of the Father, the Spirit comes, and the Spirit raises him from the dead to go back to the Father, to continue to be with the Father where he was in eternity past, to live with God, and now the Spirit is the one that points us to the Father and the Son and say, you can know God, you can know God. You are now God's people. God will live among you. Not in a tent anymore. Not in a caravan that has to be hitched and moved wherever you go. But you are now the temple. You are now the one in which the Spirit of God lives. And that's possible because of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Where did death's authority come from? When did death become the stone that was to be rolled across every person's life that would be the end of the story? In the Garden of Eden. Because God said to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. You will die. Why will you die when you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why do you die when you eat of it? Is it some arbitrary thing? Just, uh, that fruit, don't eat it. I'm just testing you. No. When you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you're actually saying, I want to know without knowing God. I want to know things without having to get to know God first. I want to define things by myself and for myself. I actually want to be the author and creator of what things are. God says, if you do that, you will die. Why? Because God is the source of life. There is no life outside of Him. There is not a... Plan B, there's only God. So if I turn away from him, I turn away from life. There's nothing for me to be found anyway. I'm going to die. So God says, don't do this, you're going to die. But we did it. And we died it. <laughs> and we're still dying. And Jesus comes along. Without sin, he says, I want you to know the Father. I'm going to obey the Father to the cross. He obeys the Father but because he is the author of life, death cannot hold him. He rises on the third day, the day we're celebrating today. And he says, death, where is your victory? Because guess what? The stone has been rolled away. The stone that was on your life. The stone that was rolled over your life to say, you are finished Death is your end. Death is your future. You cannot escape it. There's death in your way. It's the final authority. Jesus says, no, no, I'm the final authority. The stone has been rolled away. And he rolls away the stone over my life. Not so that I can just be saved, because what does it mean to be saved? It means I get to know not just so that I can go to heaven, 
What is heaven? What is eternity? It is to know God. I find it fascinating that sometimes people want to give their lives to Jesus, live on earth without spending time with Jesus so that they can go spend eternity with Jesus. I'm like, I don't know if that makes any real sense. You don't understand the homework. You didn't write it down properly. <laughs> go back. And it is this resurrection power. My, my scripture's coming to an end. Romans 8 verse 11. And the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Can I tell you what is the real miracle of resurrection? That you are being resurrected. You are being resurrected. You are being made new. I was made new the moment I gave my heart to Jesus. The resurrection power of the Spirit now works in me, and He is renewing me, and one day I will be made fully new again, and I will live with Him for eternity. Paul says, I want to know Christ, Philippians 3 verse 10. Yes, to know the power of His resurrection and to participate in His sufferings, become like Him in His death. Now, at first glance, we go, mm, I want to know the power of his resurrection. But like Debbie said earlier, before there can be a resurrection, there has to be a? How many of you want to sign up for the resurrection? How many of you want to be resurrected? Do you want to die first? You must die. If you want to live, you must die. How do we die? In the same way Jesus did. We glorify God through our obedience. We come and we say, Father, not my will be done, but your will. Not because of some fear, not because of some servant heart, but because of love for him. I love you, Father. And I realize, like the disciples said, where else will we go? Because you have the words of life. You have all of life. Where else am I going to go? I want you. I need you. And because of the working of the Spirit within you, my and me, my rebellious heart that did not want to obey God has been replaced by a new heart that wants to obey Him and every day is learning to live in the sacrifice and to fellowship with the sufferings of Christ in my own way through my obedience to Him. Sometimes my obedience leads to suffering, sometimes it doesn't, but it's always obedience. Oh, I want to obey you. And that is the resurrection power that is growing in you and me. And through our lives, we then get to glorify God. And do you know that your life, your little life, can give more glory to God than the biggest star in the universe? Because that star was made by God to glorify Him. You have a choice. But when you and I say, Lord, here I am. I want to glorify you. That's the glory He wants. That gives Him more glory than anything else is when we live for Him. Won't you stand with me? Jesus has been lifted up. He died, but He rose on the third day. But His rising wasn't just His rising. He was the first among many brethren. It is in His resurrection that our resurrection began. You are now living a resurrected life. Your resurrection doesn't happen when you die. Your resurrection happens when you die in the spirit here on earth. When you say, not my will, but your will be done. Every day, Lord, I get to live the resurrection power. I think it's so important that when we come to a Sunday like this, Resur Resurrection Sunday, we, we pause, but we don't stop here. This is not a destination. This is a departure point. We've not come to the fulfillment of our faith. We've come to the activation of our faith now. The Holy Spirit will come and He will guide you into all truth and He will empower you to be my witnesses. Now I live in the power of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we just welcome you. Thank you that the stone has been rolled away. Can you say, has your stone been rolled away? Just lift your hands and say, thank you, Jesus. The stone has been rolled away. There's no longer a stone, a heavy stone, an object that is keeping me bound in death. It has been moved. It has been rolled away. Death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? 
you have lost your power. The curse of sin and death has been broken. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And now I thank you for your spirit that you have given me, that I can live to glorify your name. I can live to glorify you every day. Not because I have to, but because I love you. Because I want to. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will fill us again this morning. Here at Resurrection Sunday, we thank you so much for what you have done. But we look at what you still want to do. We look at what you're doing in our lives right now and what you want to do through our lives. And we say more, Lord, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you that when I was caught in darkness without the light, not knowing how to find the light, the light found me. That you came and shone your light upon me so that I could come back to the light and that now I can see. That every day I can see you and because I can see you, I can see everything else and begin to learn and understand your creation and your purposes and your kingdom because I'm looking not only at you, but through you and because of you. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that I now get to be the light for somebody else. And this is my fruitfulness, Lord. That is because I get to know you, I can shine the light in the darkness. Not my light, but your light reflecting through me. And I ask you, Lord, that you would bring more fruit to my life. More fruit, Jesus. More of you. Help me to recognize that the only way I can bear more fruit is to abide in you, is to come to know you. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that that is not something I need to do, but that you help me. You make it possible for me. You teach me. You take me by the hand. You guide me. You reveal things to me. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Let us shine as lights. And so showing ourselves to be his followers. May the Lord bless you as you go onto your front line. Whether that front line is your personal home front line, your front line at work, your front line with friends, your just wherever. That you'll begin to see more and more of Jesus reflected. And so that this world will be filled with the glory of the Lord. May the Lord bless you. Amen. I want to make just an invitation. If you need prayer this morning, please come to the front. Our team will be here. And as I always say, if you don't know Jesus, this is a moment where you can come and say, not my will be done, but your will. And come and give your life to Jesus. The person will help you. You can also connect with us online. Those of you that are interested in finding out more about the church, please remember to meet Debbie in the, in the foyer hall there at the Connect Lounge. May the Lord bless you. We'll see you next week. Enjoy the rest of Easter weekend and live in the resurrection life of Jesus. Amen.